transmission. Hello and welcome to EU Watchdog Radio. I'm Paul Creaney from Counterbalance, a non-profit organisation holding public investment banks in Europe to account. The Russian invasion of Ukraine sent shockwaves across Europe and beyond. At the time of recording, over 6.5 million people had fled the country, with millions more displaced within its borders. The damage done to Ukrainian cities has also been colossal. In April, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said that over 95% of the city of Mariupol had been destroyed. After Kharkiv was liberated from Russian occupation, Mayor Ihor Terekov said around one in four homes in the city had also been decimated. Thoughts are now turning to the cost of rebuilding this damage. Speaking at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Zelensky claimed over half a trillion dollars would be need- needed to reconstruct Ukraine. European public finance institutions will no doubt play a crucial role in this rebuild, with one key institution being the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development or EBRD for short. The bank has been a key investor in the country in the past. It has invested over 16 billion euro in Ukraine since it joined the bank in 1992. On this episode of EU Watchdog Radio, we will speak with Fedanka Akheva McGrath, a campaigner at CEE Bankwatch Network. Bankwatch is a network of organizations from across Central and Eastern Europe. They campaign to prevent environmentally and socially harmful impacts of international development finance and promote alternative solutions. We discuss the EBRD's history in Ukraine. This includes problematic projects which the bank financed before the war. We also talk about how the EBRD should approach the rebuilding of Ukraine once the conflict is over. This includes how the bank's current relationship with Russia must change, how the bank should support the rebuilding of urban areas, and how mistakes previously made when investing in Ukraine's energy sector must not be repeated. So, Fedanka, firstly, um, could you explain what uh, is the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and why was it created? The European Bank for Reconstruction and Development um, is a multilateral development bank. Um, it has 71 shareholders. These are countries from all five, uh, from five continents. Um, uh, among the shareholders are also uh, the European Union and the European Investment Bank. Uh, so the EBRD was uh, established in 1991 with a mandate to promote democracy and market ec- economics in the formerly uh, centrally planned economies of uh, Central Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union. Um, so 
It had a mandate to invest in countries that are committed to moving uh, to democracy. Um, and the general idea was it would help privatize um, the, the, the industry in these countries, uh, build new infrastructure, connecting it to, uh, to the rest of the world, to, to Western Europe, and help integrate uh, these countries into the um, international community. Okay. And to clarify... Uh, was uh, democ- democratization um, part of the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development, which we'll refer to from now on as the EBRD, just for, for brevity. Was democratization a part of its initial mandate when it was formed? Yes, uh, the EBRD is unique with its political mandate. Um, in, the, um, in the very Article 1 of the cha- Charter establishing the bank, the shareholders of the bank commit that the bank will invest only in countries committed to multi-party democracy, the rule of law, human rights. Um, And that's why the bank has, due to this unique political mandate, the bank has a slightly different approach to investments. It carries out political assessments for for its countries uh, along 14 criteria, such as freedom of speech, free opposition, free elections, um, space for civil society. And based on um, on those criteria and that assessment, the bank needs to establish the extent to which the country is committed to multi-party democracy, and only then the bank can invest. So it is quite a unique mandate. We we don't see other banks having interest in this area. Uh, actually, in most institutions, they're trying to separate this kind of political and economic issues. While at the, at the EBRD. Very much in the spirit of the early 90s, um, and it, it was seen that democracy and market economics go hand in hand. Okay, and uh, obviously the world's attention at the moment is on the Ukraine-Russia uh, war. Um, could you explain a bit about the ERBD's history in the Ukraine, including outlining some kind of uh, indicative projects which uh, summarize and highlight problems with how the EBRD has acted in the Ukraine in the past. So the EBRD has been operating in Ukraine since 1992, so that's 30 years. The bank has invested in more than 500 projects for those 30 years. Um, so with the cumulative investment is about 16.5 billion euros. The current portfolio of the bank is more than 4 billion. So Ukraine has traditionally been one of the big markets, one of the big recipient countries for the EBRD. Um, Interestingly, the the EBRD invests predominantly in the private sector, but only about 40% of the EBRD portfolio is in the private sector. This means that in Ukraine, the EBRD is investing more than than it should in in public sector. Um, and this probably also speaks to more recent engagement in the municipal sector, but also uh, the fact that some of the, the big sectors like energy, transport are still in states' hands. In, initially, the bank was investing very heavily in infrastructure, in uh, the energy sector, for uh, in transport sector. More recently, we've seen a shift, uh, for example, since since 2014, since Maidan, we see the EBRD investing a lot more in industry and agribusiness. Agribusiness became a really important sector in the last eight years. Currently, um, the portfolio is, let's say, about half into infrastructure um, and about a third into industry and, agri- and agribusiness. 
in the energy sector, I can mention support for for the nuclear sector. The EBRD uh, is is not allowed, uh, according to its energy policy, to invest in new nuclear power. But in Ukraine, uh, the bank has invested in um, uh, safety upgrades of existing reactors. Um, this has been seen as problematic uh, by Bankwatch and our member group, um, our member groups in Ukraine, because these safety upgrades, in in reality, um, result in lifetime extension. Those reactors are well past their due date, their designed lifetime, and all of them are now operating significantly with extended lifetime. So there has been concerns about how, how sustainable this is, especially um, in view of the fact that Ukraine hasn't really developed a plan for the commissioning of any of its reactors. The fund where it should collect funds for the commissioning is empty. There has been concerns about the independence of the regulator, independent management of the decommissioning fund. So yeah, initially this uh, uh, safety upgrade was supposed to really happen with long-term vision in mind of how decommissioning is going to start happening. But unfortunately, years after this involvement in the nuclear sector started, uh, some of those conditions that the EBRD imposed are not um, implemented. And there's no clarity on how decommissioning will ever happen. Also, there's issues with management of fuel and waste. And nowadays, um, actually last week, we were in Marrakesh for the annual meeting of the bank. We heard now of plans of producing purple hydrogen in Ukraine, or also known as pink hydrogen. This is hydrogen produced with the help of nuclear energy. And the idea would be to then export it to the European Union. So if there's such enthusiasm about pink hydrogen, the, the fear is that there's not going to be much incentives for uh, moving with the commissioning of some of Ukraine's really old reactors. And then uh, from there come the security and safety concerns. Uh, EBRD has also been involved in the Chernobyl Shelter Fund. This is a $2 billion fund, two-thirds um, by the European Union, some of EBRD's own money. This was practically a fund to create this shelter above the above Chernobyl. Um, so yeah, the the bank has been involved in in nuclear one way or another. Um, in addition, as I said, since uh, 2014, the bank became very active in the agribusiness sector. Um, and this has to some extent to do with the free trade and uh, association agreement that Ukraine signed with the European Union, helping Ukrainian producers export agricultural production, grain, uh, meat to the European Union and beyond. Uh, many of those projects came with trade finance and supporting uh, trade expansion also supporting infrastructure, uh, for example, building uh, storage facilities or building uh, ports for exporting agricultural production from Ukraine. So yeah, this is um, these are some of the areas where the EBRD has been very active in the country. Okay, thanks for that uh, overview of the uh, EBRD's kind of previous uh, activity in the Ukraine. Obviously, since the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine in um, February, the EBRD has a pledge to help uh, in the rebuilding of the country. Could you discuss kind of what the bank has a pledge to do? So yes, they already announced an initial package of two billion. Um, so 
part of this half of it uh, two billion resilience package is uh, directed to Ukraine and the other half to neighboring countries that are welcoming Ukrainian refugees. And the bank has made clear that this is only going to be the initial uh, the initial step and that there's going to be uh, more such uh, funds to follow. So the, the part on Ukraine, obviously a lot of Ukrainian businesses are facing serious difficulties with um, the infrastructure, with work, with labor force, with, um, I mean, the war has practically prevented many Ukrainian businesses from, from working or from exporting the way they used to in the past. Many of them are facing liquidity uh, problems. So big part of the EBRD resilience framework will go to, to help those clients, those existing clients in the country. Uh, for example, with payment deferrals or debt forbearance, debt restructuring for, for the EBRD clients in Ukraine. Also liquidity finance, trade, supporting trade finance uh, where it's possible. Um, it's still hard to get involved when it comes to actual reconstruction um, and fixing the damages um, that resulted from the war because the war is still ongoing. But yeah, the bank is trying to be there for, for its clients and to support them face those difficulties that resulted from the war. As, as we understand, the, the bank is in contact with the with authorities, Ministry of Finance, the Ukrainian government, civil society. We are also uh, having positions on how how the process should continue. Um, and on one hand, there is anticipation for when the war will end, for the real work to, to start. But on the other hand, the bank is there for, for its clients. Okay, and uh, you mentioned that um, you work for the Bankwatch Network, which is a uh, network of civil society organizations from across Central and Eastern Europe. And you also have members you are working with uh, on this who are in the Ukraine and based in the Ukraine. What are your demands towards the BRD on mm -hmm. how it should help in uh, uh, rebuilding Ukraine after the uh, conflict is over? Yeah, so our demands go in two directions. First is with regards to the sanctions on Russia and Belarus. On one hand, the EBRD suspended access of Russia and Belarus to its resources. So there's no more investments in these countries. Um, in effect, the EBRD stopped investing in Russia since 2014, since the annexation of Crimea, and stopped investing in Belarus in, 2000, uh, in uh, 2020 after the fraudulent elections and crackdown on protests in, um, in Belarus. So this was um, de facto suspension. Uh, now there is the jure, so formal suspension, which was approved by the governors. This is the highest decision-making body in the in the bank. Um, so, in effect, you know, it's a strong step, but it's not uh, making a huge difference uh, because, as I said, the the uh, Russian and Ukrainian investments have already been stopped. So we are asking that the bank, as well as other multilateral development banks, should increase the pressure on Russia. Uh, the ultimate goal is that Russia will stop the war. Um, it will feel the, the weight of, of sanctions and will feel more incentives to stop the war. So we are asking that multilateral development banks and the EBRD should stop investing in any companies with links to Russia. For example, foreign uh, like third countries or foreign uh, companies that have operations in Russia still, 
of, for example, companies in third countries that have beneficial owners from Russia. Uh, we know, for example, of such companies in Caucasus or Central Asia, um, predominantly in the extractive se sector that are registered in the country, but their owners are Russian oligarchs, including ones on the sanctions list. So we suggest that EBRD should uh, divest from all these companies, even non-Russian companies, that either have operations in the country or have some links to Russian business, Russian oligarchs. One other demand is that DBRD should stop procure, should, should uh, prevent from Russian and Belarusian companies from procurement opportunities. Like for example, we know that there are Russian and Belarusian companies uh, still participating in tenders in the public uh, transport sector in Central Asia. The procurement rules, you know, cannot discriminate on the basis of nationality. But on the other hand, Ukrainians can participate because Ukrainian business now can't can't really compete for those standards. And in Marrakesh, we got the sense that this demand is not unreasonable and that there's actually a lot of people at the bank who think that's fair enough and the procurement rules now being adjusted uh, in this regard. So that's uh, one set of demands that concern Russia and pressuring Russia to stop the war. Then there's another set of demands with regards to supporting Ukraine uh, and eventually supporting Ukraine's reconstruction. Uh, there are several issues. One is the Ukrainian debt, which is already very heavy. Um, there's concerns of how that's going to be paid. So uh, civil society and our member group in Ukraine, uh, EcoAction, have a clear demand that there should be a balance between grants and loans, and there should be long-term low interest rate loans, just to make sure that this debt burden is not going to increase and it's going to be bearable for the country. Another demand concerns the quality of reconstruction. I mean, since 2014, we've seen investments that were not sustainable, uh, investments that were resulting in severe violation of human rights, that did not respect democratic processes. I mentioned agribusiness. I mean, you know, it, when EBRD invests in agribusiness, it did not direct the majority of that investment for small and medium family farms. It invested in oligarchs, including like fifth richest person in the country. And unfortunately, this way of concentrating, you know, land and concentrating resources in the agribusiness was not sustainable and has resulted in opposition from local communities, including conflicts between local communities and agro-holdings. Uh, so we don't want to see the repeat of that. Uh, we want um, that reconstruction will happen with high standards of transparency, public participation, uh, sustainability, and of course, integrity due diligence. This, is, this means preventing corruption and making sure that money is not wasted, uh, doesn't end up in the wrong places, in the wrong pockets and that the investments will really benefit the Ukrainian nation, not just uh, the richest companies and holdings in the country. You mentioned that the EBRD previously supported uh, businesses in the Ukraine, agribusinesses that were owned and operated by oligarchs. Uh, could you go into more detail one of those uh, examples of that? Uh, I believe there was a controversial MHP for, uh, yeah, project, um, for example. I can speak about one of those companies because we are very we are most familiar with it. This was the company that received four loans from the EBRD, a loan from the EIB, several loans from the IFC, that's the International Finance Corporation of the World Bank. So this was a company that received 
practically more than half a billion uh, of investments from all the institutions. And it was, in a way, the darling of multilateral development banks attracting huge amounts. Um, so Bankwatch is following the money. When we see the money goes to, to one company from all the banks and amounting to more than half a billion, naturally, we wanted to look closer into these investments. Um, the problem with these investments was that they were concentrating a lot of facilities around villages and villages were not happy about it. Usually, usually if there's just crop production, it's not as problematic. But when there's also animal breeding, like in this case, poultry production, this becomes very problematic because of, of waste, odors. Um, generally, I would say the huge concentration of facilities around villages. The problem was that the company uh, was not very open to criticism and there wasn't a real dialogue between its opponents. And oftentimes we saw real conflicts in villages, including people who got beaten up or threatened, people who were prevented from uh, entering public hearings. So um, after a couple of years of monitoring and trying to work with, uh, with the communities, Bankwatch supported, and our member group in Kiev, uh, EcoAction, supported uh, submission of complaints to the EBRDs and the IFC's accountability mechanisms. And then we, then we advised villagers, uh, representatives of the complainants, in their negotiation with the company. They were asking for remedy for harm, for example, heavy traffic causing cracks on houses, they were asking for compensation for the cracks on houses and they were asking for bypass road uh, so that all these heavy traffic is not going to the village. They were asking for more information, access to participation of, of local people, uh, a number of demands. Um, and after negotiating for three years, unfortunately, the dispute resolution didn't achieve any agreement. Um, so now this complaint is at the compliance review stage. This is practically like, like an audit or an investigation to check if the bank, uh, in this case EBRD and IFC, if the two banks have followed uh, their, their rules, uh, their environmental and social standards and their environmental and social policies. We hope that by the time the war is over, we're also going to have the lessons learned from these compliance reviews, which will be useful in the future to inform how investments should happen in a sustainable way, uh, including people, informing people, and taking people's concern into consideration. We also hope that there can be some remedy for those people, for all the harm they've, they've suffered from being surrounded by so many industrial agriculture facilities. And yeah, we we do hope that, uh, and this is also our position that we presented at the um, at the Marrakesh annual meeting, that multilateral development banks and the EBRD will focus more on small and medium enterprises, family farms, because this is where sustainable agriculture happens, and this is the backbone of Ukraine's um, agri sector. Yeah, thanks. It's really a concerning project, really, that the EBRD uh, finance and obviously something that we don't want to happen again when the EBRD and other banks kind of begin to finance kind of reconstruction and redevelopment in Ukraine after the after the conflict. Um, if we could move to discussing kind of the EBRD's investments in Ukrainian uh, cities. Before uh, the conflict broke out, some Ukrainian cities have been working with the bank to become kind of uh, greener and more sustainable. Um, how has the war affected this work? Yes. Um... 
seven Ukrainian cities were part of the EBRD's Green Cities program. And some of them have already been through discussing action plans uh, and approved Green City action plans. Uh, Mariupol was one of those uh, that had a very ambitious uh, green agenda. Others, for example, Kiev, uh, were in the process of discussing this Green City action plan. Several cities already had trigger projects, so-called trigger projects, so initial investments, um, let's say, in electrification of public transport or um, Lviv was very ambitious, for example, with regards to zero waste and waste management. Um, so, yeah, there was um, there was interest and ambition on behalf of Ukrainian cities to, to benefit from such investments, climate action investments in cities. Uh, be it public transport, be it waste, water, district heating. I mean, there's so many. Uh, there were so many areas for energy improvements and climate proofing uh, cities. Unfortunately, all seven cities have been impacted. Obviously, uh, Mariupol being the the one that was impacted the worst. Practically 90% of the city is now destroyed. So all the plans that were made about greening are not relevant and need to be redrawn from, from scratch. And obviously we need to make a, a caveat. It's it's really not appropriate to look for silver linings in this war. Um, we all really, really regret the, the devastation and destruction. On the other hand, we also see that there is already some, some enthusiasm coming from Ukraine to reconstruct the, car, the country, to build it better, to build it greener. Um, even yesterday, we heard from President Zelensky his ambition to host the next Eurovision contest in Mariupol. So if we build on this enthusiasm and this faith, indeed, there is a, there is a scope to build and rebuild those cities in a, in a green way. I would say that multilateral um, development banks, particularly the EBRD, are very interested in this process. And given the chance, uh, hopefully when the war ends soon, we can see proper planning. Uh, for for this to happen, um, and with this regard, I, I want to, to to mention some of our demands or conditions that we've been discussing with the bank uh, before the war and now as the war is ongoing. Um, we see that it's really really important to include civil society and affected people, practically to include residents and citizens in discussions about uh, greening cities. It's particularly important to to include uh, representatives of vulnerable groups, like I mean, there's minorities, internally displaced people. Now, the question of internally displaced people is only is only bigger. There's women, gender minorities who have uh, specific needs, or old people, retired people who have certain needs, as well as people who are vulnerable because of uh, economic disadvantage. So poor people. Because we have seen that climate action can sometimes uh, bring affordability issues. We've already seen in Ukraine, uh, actually in um, Mariupol, a case when the, a project in public transport resulted in raising of the cost of uh, public transport for people. And there were protests and blocking, blocking of streets uh, because people were saying they were not informed, they weren't prepared for the, for rising costs of public transport. Uh, and they were also arguing that the quality of the service didn't necessarily improve uh, in terms of regularity, like how often buses come, 
etc. So from this point of view, it, it is now more than ever important to make sure that the, the needs and concerns of people and those service users, like, you know, service users at the public transport, of district heating, of water, that their rights and their preferences and opinions are, are taken into account when building this green vision and then building the, rebuilding those green cities. Uh, because... Um, Ukraine is a, is a good example of a country of a, you know country that had democratic processes in place and hopefully those can be definitely strengthened um, and rebuilt uh, in the future to make sure that the needs and voices of uh, citizens, vulnerable groups are taken into consideration through democratic processes. And DBRD, among all the MDBs, uh, has that mandate to promote democratic processes through its operations, including in green cities. Uh, that's what we are looking forward to, a real democratic and green reconstruction away from fossil fuels, uh, using... And there are so many opportunities that were discussed in Marrakesh, like electrification of cities, um, because even before the war, air quality was considered one of the big issues in most Ukrainian cities. So there is going to be a chance to discuss how to how to fix that in view of the new circumstances. Okay, thanks. I mean, it um, it sounds like there's obviously a lot uh, a lot that will need to be done after the conflict um, ends, and also kind of other issues that arose, like you mentioned, with the uh, public transportation in Mariupol and the prices. The controversy over the prices that um, hopefully, like the EBRD, can work towards ensuring that doesn't that isn't repeated in the future when a larger reconstruction effort and will take place. One of the uh, other key sectors, as you've mentioned uh, previously, uh, that the EBRD is invested in Ukraine is the energy sector, which will obviously need further investment after the conflict is resolved uh, as well. Um, other multilateral banks have also financed or joined in financing concerning energy projects in Ukraine in the past, such as the European Investment Bank. You've talked about this briefly, but uh, if you have uh, any other examples, could you kind of provide a kind of an example of a controversial kind of energy project which the EBRD should really avoid repeating or do differently um, in the reconstruction of Ukraine with, uh, after the war? Yeah, I mean, I've already mentioned the nuclear sector. It's it's obvious that it is a significant safety concern. Um, additional thing I didn't mention is that many reactors in Ukraine uh, depend on fuel supply from Russia. Uh, so that's the kind of dependence that Ukrainians don't want to see continuing. And all those reactors operate uh, well beyond their lifetime all the safety measures are practically extending the lifetime of reactors. At the same time, there's uh, not enough thinking about decommissioning, uh, not enough money put safely into a fund for decommissioning. And the question is really like, when are we going to see a plan uh, and a fund for decommissioning of, of reactors, even one, not to, not to mention that Ukraine has more than uh, has hundreds of reactors that will have to be decommissioned sooner rather than later. On top of all these concerns about nuclear, uh, there come the plans that we heard about in Marrakesh about producing pink hydrogen for export. I mean, the idea is really not welcome. I mean, on one hand, there's the, the concern that we're going to rebuild Ukraine, but then we're going to turn it into like a resource base for export so that we can, you know, extract 
you know, resources like energy resources or grain and then export them to Europe. Um, obviously, this all, the, all this kind of trade is going to be good for integration of Ukraine into the European Union and it's going to contribute to the economy of the country. But it really needs to be approached with, with caution when it comes to the sustainability of, of such ideas. There is potential, there's massive renewables potential in Ukraine. Uh, in the past, multilateral development banks were involved. Unfortunately, the sector, the renewables were operating in this feed-in tariffs regime, which ended up in, uh, which resulted in very high prices of renewables energy. And now a lot of people in Ukraine view renewables as expensive. The reality is that it wasn't the fact that renewables are expensive or more expensive than, than nuclear. Renewables are becoming more and more competitive and cheaper. Um, and the way forward would be to, to invest into more renewables in the country through auctions. Scrap the feed-in tariffs. Most countries are scrapping the feed-in tariffs. They're really not a good model, but go for auctions. We also need to move from projects owned by oligarchs and really make sure that this is distributed renewables, decentralized renewable system, which is benefiting, first of all, the citizens of Ukraine. Uh, like, you know, there can be heat pumps for district heating, solar on roof, combination of those that are benefiting Ukrainians before, before there's those mega plans for exporting from the country. And again, like we've seen, for example, if you're the investments in biogas of MHP, you know, biogas in itself is, is a good way to utilize waste, in this case from poultry production. But the way it was implemented uh, was not really uh, done properly. So this only shows that renewables projects should be done. They can be done better through better economic models and better uh, models of involving public, uh, consulting with public. So yeah, we, we believe there is a huge potential in Ukraine for energy transition, which will be just uh, and benefiting, first of all, the people of Ukraine, and then eventually for exporting to the European Union. I mean, Ukrainian um, grid was connected to, to Europe. We heard in, in Marrakesh that by end of year, uh, that connection should be, uh, should be fully operational. So this, this provides additional opportunities for balancing, and it's going to be very beneficial having a Ukrainian market linked to the European market. Okay, that's, again, extremely interesting. And um, you know, the possibility of being able to kind of create kind of renewable energy projects that benefit Ukrainians first and also are decentralized, so that kind of community, there's an ounce of community, community ownership or community management there is is obviously a promising one, one we hope to see uh, implemented uh, when the uh, when the war ends. Yeah, huge potential. Okay, um, thank you for your time, Fidanka. It's been a really informative conversation, and um, we wish you obviously the best of luck with your uh, work towards the EBRD and uh, on the uh, situation in Ukraine uh, in the future. Thank you, Paul. Very nice talking to you. We've now reached the end of today's podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks also to Mark Broner and Jan Kalawert for their technical assistance. If you want to learn more about Counterbalance's work, check out our website and social media channels and subscribe to our newsletter. Stay tuned and stay safe.